because it uh, has taught us some just some wonderful things about God. And uh, we have one more opportunity to look at that this evening. And I'm looking forward to doing that. It's uh, Roman numeral, uh, yeah, two. And now I only got the Roman numeral two after two weeks of uh, preaching on it. But uh, <clears throat> we've looked at uh, and we spent some time looking at, uh, at who God is. God gave us an introduction to himself. <coughs> Excuse me. As uh, Moses, <coughs> obeying God's command, comes up into the mount with uh, <coughs> some new tablets. And he is... Uh, a meeting with God, and God introduces himself to Moses and introduces himself to us. And uh, at that point, <clears throat> we have Moses worshiping God. And we've already spent some time talking about this. What is worship? You know, look, wor worship, isn't, uh, worship isn't the music part of the service, although, you know, that's what they talk about today. You know, we've got a worship team, and we've got, we've got uh, the, the worship service, and a lot of times people just think that the more they're worked into a frenzy, the more they have worship. But that is not the case at all. Worship literally is when someone bows the knee before God. That's exactly what Moses did. It says in verse 8, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So he fell down before God, this one who had been introduced to him in Exodus chapter 34 by the title um, if you look in verse uh, 6, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. And after God is done with the introduction, Moses just falls on his face before God. That's what worship is. And here's the truth. We should be worshiping every time we come to church, uh, not physically, if you would, bowing and falling down flat on our face before God, although there's nothing sinful in that or wrong. Um, but, uh, but in heart, always bowing before God, willing to hear whatever God would have us to hear and do whatever he'd have us to do and listen to what he has to say. And you know what? What actually takes place in the rest of the chapter, consistent with the, what the word worship means, is Moses worshiped because he listened to what God had to say. Because after God introduces himself, Moses falls down in verse 8 before God and, and bows in worship and humbles himself before God. God now begins in starting in, in, um, in really in verse 9. Um, well, he, Moses makes a plea. And then in verse uh, 10, God begins to speak, and he says, I make a covenant before all my people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any, nor any nation. And all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. Ye shall break the, uh, uh, sorry, destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god. Jealous God, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they go whoring after their gods and do sacrifice unto their gods. And one called thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice, and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods. 
and make thy sons go whoring after their gods. Thou shalt make thee no molten god. The Lord continues to give them instruction, but we'll leave it off right there as we are going to look at this evening. God's expectations are explained as God begins to speak now about the covenant that he has with the children of Israel and tells them things they need to do. And you know, as I was reading through this chapter, it's like you're just arrested in who God is when you have this this awesome, you say, introduction to God by God as he gives us a description of who he is. And then you see this picture of Moses falling down before God and worshiping. And then God then starts in. And as I read through the rest of the chapter, uh, at first it was kind of like, well, there's just a bunch of stuff here, a bunch of laws, a bunch of rules, a bunch of other things that God wants the children of Israel to do. What can we learn? And there is something to learn. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at a few thoughts from his word in this passage. Father, thank you for the, um, the privilege you've given us tonight to uh, look once more at your word, the, the divine, awesome, powerful words of the almighty God of heaven and earth. Thank you, Father, that you breathed out these words to men that we might, we might know you might know what you're like, that we might know what pleases you and what doesn't please you. And as we were stirred this morning from the New Testament, help us to be stirred this evening from the Old Testament, understanding that all scripture is given by inspiration and all of it is profitable. So please, and help me to ask Well, thank you. Give us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have the outline that we've had for a few weeks, I know, uh, God's expectations are explained in this last, if you would, portion of Exodus chapter 34. And, um, and as I came to it, I tried to ask myself those questions that I, I encourage you, and we've talked about a number of times now, so we're not going to go over them again this evening. But uh, starting, obviously, with do we see Jesus? But then uh, what kind of lessons does God want us to learn and what kind of things can we glean? And as I asked myself that question and I read through God's covenant and many of the rules, if you would, the regulations, the things that he was laying before the people, um, it it was kind of interesting to see how uh, just a few different thoughts and and ideas can be gleaned from all these different laws. You'll find, uh, starting in verse 18, Uh, And then verse 21, you'll see it again, and and verse 22, God is going to talk about the feast days, what the children of Israel are supposed to do. He's going to talk about the the Sabbath day, Uh, six days you'll work, verse 21. He talks about the feast of weeks. Um, He talks about how three times in the year, verse 23, the children would appear before the Lord God. So what do we learn from this This. A chapter of instructions for Israel. What good is that for us? Well, uh, first thing to learn uh, from, from verse 11 and on through the end of the chapter is this, our approach to God's precepts, our approach to God's precepts. Because what he does is he calls, uh, first of all, upon Moses to do what we should do in regard to all of God's word. Because it's as we just prayed a few moments ago. It's all profitable. It's all beneficial to our lives. So what are we supposed to do in regard to the word of God? 
The same thing that he challenged the children of Israel. We're told in the New Testament, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Here God said, observe that which I command thee this day. Two things he told him in verse 11 and then in verse 12. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And so uh, two things he says. First is uh, uh, verse 11, attend to his instructions. Notice the word, observe thou that which I command thee this day. The word is the word uh, that is understood or translated in some places, guard. So the first instruction, the first verse is meant to be understood is, look, you're to protect or give attendance to the things that have been spoken. Kind of supposed to make a hedge about them and make them part of your life. They should be something that's included in your life. So what is to come, he says, my instructions, my words are to be something that you guard, that you protect, that you observe, listen to very carefully, pay attention to, figure out what it means, and then seek to do it. And quite honestly, that's the same approach you and I are supposed to have to the Word of God. Now, again, we don't want to spiritualize the text and say, well, verse 11 is telling Christians to do that today because it wasn't. It's the children of Israel. But God does give us that very same instruction. And our attitude should be that toward the Word of God, not just, okay, I got my Bible reading done, but attend to it and, and guard it and protect it and say, this is important for me. So when I come tomorrow to read the Bible in the morning or when I do it later this week, as I read the Word of God, as I come to church, I want to come with this attitude that I'm going to observe what God commands. I'm going to pay attention to it. I'm going to attend to his instruction. In verse 12, it's interesting, but the translators were wise. They used different words to begin the verse, even though the same word is used. Take heed to thyself. So two things he calls upon him to do. First, attend to his instructions. And then verse 12 is apply it. And isn't that truth? Look, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, I know God's word. I understand it. But it's another thing yet to then apply it to my life. Uh, and we've referenced that or brought that out here recently in other messages. Uh, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving your own selves. That's what God wants when we come to his law. So whether it's Israel in the Old Testament, observe and take heed, or it's a Christian in the New, New Testament, look, study to show thyself approved unto God. And, and when you come to the word of God, be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. This instruction is the same because it's God's word just the same. And so may we learn from that, our approach to his precepts. Now, the second thing I want you to see from this and glean from it, if you would, is our attendance to his principles. Our attendance to his principles. I already said this. What follows are God's practical instructions in regard to what they're to do in the days ahead. And here's the truth. You go through that list. And that, really, there's nothing that applies to us. We're not under the Sabbath rule. Um, there's, there's really uh, very little. In the, we're not under the feast days. We don't have to celebrate those. So you say, what, what then can we glean from these lessons? Well, uh, it's kind of interesting as I was reading it through. There's no obligation to practice these specific commands. In fact, much has absolutely no application to us. I mean, really. Um, Okay, break down their altars and, and their images and cut down their groves. Well, 
certainly that doesn't apply to us. You know, although I guess we could make some sort of application to Christians today. That's just some guys who do this passage. Well, bless God, you gotta, you got to smash your TV. You know, I mean, you know, that's your idol. You worship it. And, uh, you know, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what Israel's supposed to do when they get into the promised land. Destroy their idols. Get rid of anything that would, what? So, so he's just giving these things. He's teaching through these commands. But I'll tell you something, as I read through these things, the great lesson in this text for us today, to me, is not the specific commands, but the practice that God was instituting and the reason for it. The first few of the things he shares deals with protecting them. Look, look if you would again, take heed to thyself. All right, so observe and take heed those two commands in regard to his words and his commands. And in verse 12, he says, don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Why? Why shouldn't they make a covenant? Because, I mean, if they do, it's going to trip them up. So don't get involved with the people of the land. Don't, don't, uh, don't make your life, there, you know, don't, don't get in with them. Uh, so he was trying to protect them because he understood that evil communications, which is taught in the New Testament, corrupt good manners. He understood, as Solomon uh, so aptly taught later on, uh, that, you know, if you hang around with the wrong, well, if you hang around with wise men, as we looked at on Wednesday night, then you'll be wise. But a companion of fools shall be destroyed. And so he shares with things, that was something that would protect them. And if they failed to do it, it would be a snare. Um, if you look at verse uh, 15, if you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, uh, don't do it, or lest that you make a, a covenant. Why? Because uh, they, they'll go whoring after their gods and do sacrifice to their gods, and they'll call you. I mean, look, if you're hanging around with them all the time, what are they going to do? Come to church with us. Right? By the way, I, this, this is just free, but this happens, this happens all the time, you know. Well, I invited someone to come to church with me. They came to church with me, so I went to church with them. Do you realize that when, when you do that, you're saying, we're all on equal ground. We all believe the same thing. It's no big deal. And a Christian shouldn't do that. This is free. This is not, not, not in text, but this is free. A Christian shouldn't do that because we're not on the same part. We're not equal, and we're not doing the same thing. So as a Christian, I want someone to come because I want them to hear the truth of God's word. And because I believe in the doctrines and the truths that are taught, which are found in the Word of God, which are found here, and I don't agree with the things that are, that are in that church. Now, you know, that's going to go a long way in probably, probably, if you would, separating you from people. But we're to come out from among them and be separate. In fact, that's kind of, to me, the idea of these verses. If there is a the principle overall that you and I could glean from this is that God gave them numerous instructions to protect them and what he taught them to do in those, in those rules, in, in most all of those rules in verses 12 to 17 is this. There's a call to separation. There's a call to separation. Separate yourself. Well, why do I separate myself? Because, because what they do in their worship is going to be a snare. Do you know the New Testament even talks about that? He told Timothy, 
that you don't get into arguments with people who don't believe the right thing and aren't holding to the right thing and are trying to deceive people. Don't get into arguments with them. Don't get into discussions with them. Don't go with them. Because, look, the truth is that many times error wins, sadly, when when truth is argued out as far as in the hearing of people. And people can be deceived and led astray. So don't get involved in it. Separate yourself from that. And these commands in verses 12 to 17 really have to do with that. Separate yourself. A call to separate from the land. Linking up with lost people will often become a snare. Linking up with people who worship the wrong gods and false gods will often be a snare. Um, he says the impact of a lost world on them might be, uh, might be subtle. Look at again verse 15. Let's now make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Okay, so you make a covenant. And then they go whoring after their gods to do sacrifice unto their gods. And here's the truth. You make a covenant, they go and they worship their, their gods, you go and worship your god, but you know what's eventually going to happen? They're going to say, you know, come with me to church. And you're going to say, well, you know, hey, what's the difference? It's not really a big deal. So I go and I see it and I say, wow, there's some good things that go on in that service. I'd like to kind of implement them at, 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 at our church. And before long, you start to be more accepting to the truths. It's kind of a subtle thing. And God says, you gotta, you got to stay true. you got to separate yourself because when you don't separate yourself from false teaching and from false teachers and from people who aren't believing, don't believe the truth, is they're going to have an impact upon your life. And so God, in so many places, in fact, let's just take a look, I, because I, I, this, this principle overall that he was teaching in these verses is taught often in the New Testament. Go to, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, would you? 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we could spend all our time looking at various verses. Oh, Love not the world, neither are things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in. First John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Um, we could uh, talk about making no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof in Romans 13, 14. But if we wanted to look at the specific principle of, of don't yoke up with unbelievers or with people that don't believe the truth, um, well, mark them which cause divisions and strife contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. I mean, again, we could just spend all sorts of time. Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith. But look, if you would, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, now that you've had time to get there, verse 14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with... What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, um, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And that is what God was doing in verses 12 to 17 of Exodus chapter 34. He was saying, look, understand this. You hang around with the wrong kind of people, you'll be influenced by the wrong kind of people. When you're influenced by the wrong kind of people, you'll go the wrong direction eventually. To stay true, you've got to separate yourself. 
Um, and that is a principle taught throughout the Word of God. Um, and it's found in, in this passage here. Um, so the mandate to Israel is ultimately to separate. And from that, we can learn a lesson for ourselves and, and, and a lesson even in our day because God calls us to do the same thing in a different way, but the same thing nonetheless. You know what's interesting in the midst of, and this is kind of a sideline too, in the midst of a call to separation that we've just addressed, um, in verse 14 we see something that's interesting. Thou shalt worship no other God, uh, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. You know, some people are turned off by the prospect of God being a jealous God. You know, I, I was reading an article I thought it was interesting. Oprah Winfrey rejected religion, turned from religion because And so she said, if God is a jealous God, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And by the way, she doesn't. And if you listen to her advice, you're a fool. That was free, too. All right, why are people like her and others turned off by the fact that God is a jealous God? Because they see it as a flaw in his character. Because we're told in Scripture, envy and jealousy are wrong, aren't we? But do you realize that with, with many things that, that could even be sinful, there are, often, there are often just and righteous things in that? For example, wrath, anger. Anger can be sinful, but anger can be right. Jesus Christ went in and threw out the money changers. There was, nothing, there was nothing calm about that at all. But he was in control, and he did that which was right. Someone explained it, and I thought it was good. It helped, helped me to get a grasp of it a little bit better. A preacher explained it this way. He said, there's such a thing as righteous jealousy. A husband has a right to be jealous of his wife's affections. And a wife has a right to be jealous of her husband's affection. I wouldn't want my children to walk around calling other men dad. Jealousy is a right and good thing when it's, it's a passion to protect what is rightfully yours. In the same way, God is characterized by a righteous jealousy. God's jealousy is not an emotion that takes him away and is stirred up by evil or wrong. It's stirred up and provoked in him whenever something hinders his enjoyment of what rightfully belongs to him. And what rightfully belongs to him is worship and adoration and service. And the reason he made these rules is because as a jealous God, he had a right to their worship and he understood that if they didn't separate they would end up worshiping those gods and giving worship to someone else that belongs to God alone. Does that make sense? It really helps you understand then that verse 14 is a, a, a failure or a flaw in God. It's ultimately that which is right because as the creator of all, he is worthy of all worship and praise. And quite frankly, that's one of the reasons why God is angry with the wicked every day because the wicked aren't willing to give God homage that he rightfully deserves all the time because he is their maker so there's a call to separation now starting in verse 18 
You say, well, okay, Pastor, all right, good. At least you dealt with five verses there. So how do we deal with verses 18 and on where he talks about ah, the Sabbath day and he talks about feast days and, and he talks about going to, to do this? All right, so let me give you, let me give you four things. And, and, wow, we had to alliterate this. So we have a call to surrender, sacrifice, service, and selflessness. You get all those? A call to surrender, sacrifice, service, and selflessness. Verses 18 to 23. God, again, gives them these things. The Feast of Unleavened Bread you're supposed to keep. Uh, the, the, all that opened the matrix is mine, so you're supposed to make an offering uh, to God of the firstborn. Uh, all the firstborn of thy sons, verse 20, talks you're going to redeem. Uh, six days you work, on the seventh day you rest. And in earing time and in harvest, you're to do the same thing. You're to give a day to me. You're to observe the Feast of Weeks, verse 22. Uh, three times in the year, you're going to come and appear before God, the God of Israel. All right, so in these commands, in these instructions, God gives them a call ultimately to surrender, to sacrifice, to service, or to selflessness. And those things... I had to bring a bunch in because, because there's actually either one or two or a combination or maybe even all of them included in these commands and instructions God gives. He calls upon Israel to do various things. Participate, again, go over them quickly. Participate in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that involves sacrifice, doesn't it? I, I got to do what God has told me. Why, why, do I have to have, why do I have to use unleavened bread? And why do I have to do this? Uh, it involves sacrifice, uh, giving to God the firstborn of animals and re redeeming the firstborn child, verses 19 and 20. Um, and, and pause for a moment there. Giving to God the best and the first are hard to understand and difficult to do. But can I tell you, the New Testament teaches us to do the same thing. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Above what? Well, if you want to understand the passage correctly in, in the book of Matthew, it's uh, above food, raiment, and worry about those things and provisions. God says, seek first the kingdom of God. Put me first. And that's what he called upon them to do in this, giving to God the very best. And, uh, and you know what? I have to go with, against what I naturally do, which is make sure my needs are met first and then I'll give to God. Do you know some people do that in, in tithing? Okay, look, I'm going to take care of all my bills and if I have money left over, I'm going to give it to God. And you know what God says? God says, you give, me, you give me from the top, you give me the best, you give me first, and then you trust me to take care of the rest. And I'm a faithful God, I'll do that. I'll open the windows of heaven, he talks about. In See, what God calls upon me to do is surrender, to sacrifice, to serve, to be selfless. And he was doing that exactly in these, in these rules and in these laws. Um, I'm to give them from that which is first, and that's what God tells us to do. Obeying the Sabbath. I, I love what verse 21 says, because, uh, okay, all right, fine, I'll observe the Sabbath. But earring and harvest, those are important times. I'm a farmer. I don't get the crops in. I don't take care of the needs of my, my field. So, so look, during those times, I, I just can't observe the Sabbath. I, I got to keep going. I got to I work every day of the week. Humanly, isn't that what we say? 
And what God says is, look, you trust me, you give me that day. And, and, and don't, don't come and tell me, well, you know what, I'm real busy and the only day of the week I got is Sunday. You need to be in church. You're here. Good. Don't make an excuse to rob God of time that he rightfully deserves. Give it to him. And give it to him first. And trust him to take care of the rest. So that's what God was calling upon them to do on, on the Sabbath. And you can think of a lot of things. I'm sure during harvest time, if you've got a field, fields have got to be brought in. Well, if it, if it rains, they're going to lose. God says, you just put me first. Give me that day. Doesn't it involve surrender, sacrifice, service, selflessness? It does. Celebrate the feast. Verse 22. The feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Why? God told you. And then, next verse. I got to take three trips every year to stand before God and expose my property and my family and everyone else to thieves. Really? Thrice in the year shall all your men and children appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge, enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man, get this, this is a promise of God. Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. Here's what God said. You know what? The rest of the year you may have people want your land. But there's three times in the year they will not want your land, and that is when you choose to obey me and go up to Jerusalem, even though it endangers your family and endangers your property and endangers your possession and everything else. I'll take care of you if you'll take care of me first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. So these things are all brought up by God in these laws. So you say, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says we are supposed to have the feast days. No, but the principle is you surrender yourself to me. You make sacrifices for me. You serve me and you live a selfless life for me following what I have said and I will take care of you. That's what God says and that's what God teaches. And when we do that, we find that God is faithful. Again, I, I say it, I reiterate, none of these things are required of believers in the church age, but what is necessary to accomplish those things are still part of our service to God today. And that God expects the same. Why do I need to assemble with believers every week? Why should I give? Why do I need to surrender my all to God and prove what his will is on a regular basis? These expectations that God has for me as a Christian in the New Testament in the church age involve one of those four things. Um, and so uh, there's just, a, there really is a powerful lesson. And, you know, it's, 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 there's just nothing for us. And I say there's, there's a wealth of information for us. In fact, quite honestly, a very searching challenge in these verses and what God shares. So we conclude and we come to the end of the chapter, verses 29 to 35. And God's, here we go to follow with the literary. God's edicts are expressed. Um, in verse 29, and, when, and it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand. When he came down from the mount, 
And Moses wished not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. I, I thought about, you know, having the glow of God in your life. You know, isn't that, that, would, that would make a great message, wouldn't it? <laughs> having the glow of God in your life. But that's ridiculous because this is a very unique situation. God doesn't expect anything to happen like that, all right? Don't want you. If you start to glow, we're going to really be concerned about what you're drinking or what you're eating. You, you health nuts, uh, don't, eat, don't eat stuff that's going to make you glow. Okay. All right, but God's edicts are expressed, and there's, there's two things, though, to bring out here. First of all, visually. His edicts are expressed visually. When you look at the close of this passage, you're struck with the greatness of God as it impacted Moses. Um, after Moses had spent time with God, the God of great glory... His face evidenced his time with God. And we could spiritualize the text. Um, but I will say this. That time with God will change a person. And although you shouldn't expect to glow, um, there should be something different about a Christian who walks with God. And there is. The fruit of the Spirit is. Things that you wouldn't expect to see in individuals. Love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, temperance, patience, faith. If someone walks with God, they should be different. And, um, and, and Moses had been affected by God. And here's the truth. He didn't even know it. But those around did. Um, you know, what happened to Moses? I can't explain it. But you know what's interesting? In the New Testament, an experience happened with Jesus Christ. And guess who was there? And, and who was bright and shining? Um, by, by the way, I, I would suspect that we'll all be that way someday when we stand before God and we're with Him. And, uh, and our lives reflect His glory and His brightness. When Jesus Christ was there, remember the three. There's three. Look at them. We're just they were amazed because they were shining in their brightness and their and their glory. And they had been impacted uh, by their time uh, with God. Adam Clark made the comment that Moses appeared as did Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, and much if you would probably like he did appear here. So the issue is not what he looked like, but the issue was he had been impacted by time with God. And that is a truth you and I can learn from. Um, I, I, again, I don't want to spiritualize the text, but um, I want people to know I've been with God. And I walk with God, and I'm in tune with God. And every Christian should. And, um, and quite honestly, you know, sometimes, sometimes that's not, not the case. And when it's not, I should be concerned about that. God's expectations, God's edicts, God's demands and commands were expressed, but but they were they were actually shown by a man who was walking with God and who was in tune with God and who had spent time with God. And God does say, does he not let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven because God has impacted your life. It's making a difference. May it be seen that you walk with God. 
and you follow God. Um, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Why would people ask unless they see something? It, it just should be seen. Visually and then verbally. When Moses comes down from the mount, he doesn't go back about his business. What was his first job? What was his first responsibility? Well, when Moses went in before the Lord, he, he spoke, he took the veil off. We see in verse 34. Um, but when he came out, he spake unto the children of Israel. And what did he do? Here's my first responsibility. Here's what God gave me. I, I want you to know exactly what God has said. Moses comes down from the mount. It wasn't, I'm going to get back to my life. We're going to get back to our journey and everything else. Here's my job. God has told me what he expects. I have walked with him. And now I want you to know what you need to do so you can walk with him too. So verbally and visually, um, God made known, I've got a message for you. By the way, that was really important that he, if you would, that he glowed, seriously. Because what it did was it gave Moses authority before the people. And he said, God has met with me. And they knew it. There was no question. God was putting his hand on Moses to say, people, this is the man I've chosen. Follow him. And uh, listen to him. Uh, look, what is worship? It's not loud music. It's not people trying to work up a feeling. It's not relegated to a few hours on Sunday morning. Worship is when I put God on the throne of my life. I separate from all things that are worldly. I live holy for him. I let my life be so impacted by him that people see a difference in the way I live and the things I do and the way I talk and the way I act. And I let people know the reason for that. It's because I serve God and he's made a difference in my life and I love him and I want you to love him and serve him too. That's what worship is all about. It's when I put aside myself I separate from the world, but when I put aside myself and I just serve him and I do what he's told me, whether I understand it or not, because he is who I love and adore. It's he who's most important in my life. Exodus 34 is all about. And we would have been foolish to just pass on because, well, these are a bunch of rules for Israel. There's a powerful teacher for us. And I might add that coming to the Lord's Supper is so appropriate after Exodus 34. Because not only are we being reminded of what Christ has done, but we're also being reminded that he deserves our all and he deserves that sacrifice and the separation from the world and from sin. He deserves a Christian who's just consecrated to him to do everything he wishes. And I hope as we come to the Lord's Supper tonight and as we are remember what he's done, that we will all, every Christian in this room who partakes, because no one that's unsaved should partake, that you will come with an attitude of reverence saying, I'm just going to examine my life and make sure I am in tune and I'm living the way that God wants me to live. Not perfect, no, that's not the idea. It's just that I am, I am responding to him and I'm listening to him. And if you are a rebellious Christian, you shouldn't partake in the Lord's Supper. It's a serious thing. 
and God takes it very seriously. And may we, as we have opportunity tonight, to think about what he's done and then once again make that surrender uh, to him. Lord God, I'm going to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. I want to live for you. So I'm going to ask the guys to come. They're going to help us with this, or the guy to come, whoever it is. The guy is the guy. And let's, um, let's end our service in a very appropriate way, thinking about what he's done for us and responding to it, just like the children of Israel were, were in a sense, being called to do in Exodus chapter 34. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Now let's live for me. And I hope you'll take the time as the elements have passed. This is one of the benefits of, of passing the elements and taking time. Just examine your life. Make sure you're in tune with the Lord and you're truly expressing in heart and in life that you're thankful for the sacrifice he's made for you. And we'll begin with the bread, the body that was given and broken that we might have life. And on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread first and and he he break it and he prayed over it. So ask Brother Duncan if he would believe us in the earth with this
After Christ had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup. Brother Farrington, would you lead us in a word of prayer? After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Could be today. Could be tomorrow. Don't know when. But until he comes, uh, let's live for him count for the one who gave his all for us. Serve a great God, don't we? So thankful that we've been able to look in the Old Testament to see this very same wonderful God as we find in the New Testament that we have opportunity to serve today as our Savior. Let's stand. We'll close in a word of prayer. And Brother Deals, I'm going to ask you to close us tonight.
Christ as you serve him. Do specifically.